For June 23rd, 2016, this is episode 48 of the PHP Roundtable. Today, we talk about a popular DevOps tool called Docker. I'm your host, Sammy K. Powers. So the demand for DevOps, these, these skills for DevOps, it's, it's growing more and more in modern web development. And all the hype for this demand is usually met with myriad DevOps tools, as you're probably familiar with. And staying abreast of how these tools can actually help make our jobs easier can be a bit daunting. It's like a never-ending quest to learn new tools. Web developers these days have to really be skilled at learning new tools. So today we plan to make your quest a little easier by taking a closer look at a little thing, a little DevOps tool called Docker. Now that we know that we're talking about, let's meet our panel, and in no particular order, we're going to kick this off with Philip, or Phil Shipley, like shipping containers. Mm -hmm. Phil is a PHP dev for the past decade and has got addicted to containers, like um, Tupperware and um, boxes. And I hear that you were really into fish tanks at one point, right? Yeah. and I I mean, I drive an hour out of town just to get to the local container store, just to kind of walk (laughs) around and look at stuff. So, definitely... (laughs) So that's highly appropriate for uh, this episode, since we are talking about containers. Um, so welcome, Philip, or Phil. Uh, Chris Tankersley, Dragon Man Tank on Twitter. He is the PHP Jack of all trades, and I added this little thing for you, and the master of all. Oh. Wink. And he's that's a DevOps engineer. <laughs> welcome, Chris. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. And I actually sketched, just uh, said on Twitter, he's like, yes, I made it. I actually, uh, on, uh, I left one of the episodes uh, on about Vue.js, and I forgot I had left it on Google Hangouts. And so Sketch was there, like, waiting for us to go live at this time. And he had the, the, the browser window open the whole time and, and was waiting and waiting and waiting. And he's like, where are you guys? <laughs> so sorry about that, Sketch. I ended up deleting that. I didn't mean to leave that out there. Um, so we're talking about Docker here. Um, so what is Docker, uh, and why is it something that PHP nerds uh, even should care about? So Docker is a, uh, for the most part, it's going to be a deployment strategy for many people. Uh, it's very much like how we use Vagrant from a developer pers- a development perspective. You can get these pre-built images, use them to put your code inside of, and run your code for you. Uh, it is much nicer than a Vagrant box or a virtual machine because the images you use in production are an exact match for what you use in development. So even you, you get you even further reduce the it works on my machine problem, I find. Uh, and a lot of the stuff's smaller. It's easier to swap stuff out with. Uh, so it's, I think, uh, it's, a, it's a shift in how we do development um, and hopefully a better shift. So what is it um, that makes it different from something like Ansible or something that provisions servers or, or gets your uh, installs all the software that you want on your servers and things like that? Well, one of the main differences is that, you know, the Ansible, Chef, Puppet, SaltStack, all these software configuration management tools, they're really great when you need to apply configurations to a broad set of servers and you want to script that so that it's very repeatable and templatable. Um, we use it a lot, or we used it a lot with uh, in the Vagrant um, days as well to spin up and configure a virtual machine. So you'd start at a very minimal base image um, and then you would install the packages and configure them and do everything you needed to there. Um, Docker is sort of 
while those things can can still be useful and can be used um, if you really want to, you almost don't need to um, because you've got a Docker file now. And a Docker file essentially describes every step of what needs to happen to build this container for your specific application. So it's no longer you know, necessarily a full-blown virtual machine running multiple services and things. Uh, a container is intended to run a single service, so you essentially just install and run the commands you need, whether it's installing packages, um, copying in configuration files, copying in your source code, and then ultimately finishing the file out with what commands should be run when this container is started. Um, so it's sort of different in that it, it can replace those tools, but um, you could there's still valid use cases for those other tools. I don't know if Chris has an idea on that. Yeah, I mean, I, from from my end, uh, especially things like Puppet, uh, they're much more used for configuration management. Uh, Ansible sometimes gets mixed with both configuration management and uh, multi-server work. Uh, but really, a lot of those tools are meant for compliance and making sure you stay in compliance. And it doesn't have to be something like HIPAA or, you know, these fancy, big, expensive things we have to keep in compliance for. Uh, but compliance in that these machines all have PHP installed. These machines all have these repos uh, set up for YUM or apt where containers really allow you to snapshot and freeze what the environment for an application looks like. And then you don't have to worry about making sure that uh, if we deploy this new image, we don't have to make sure PHP is installed. It's baked into the actual image. So we can get rid of some of the, the headaches we have and even some of the slowdown too. Uh, it's uh, one of the projects I work on when we do our Ansible deploy. The actual product deployment is only three steps out of the 20 that happen. Most of the 20 are also making sure other packages are installed and up to date. So we're, it's, it's a shift in how those things work. Uh, if you have a lot of servers and make sure they run, you can run Ansible and make sure Docker's up to date and installed on those machines you're using. So they serve a little bit different purpose. Uh, I think it's better to think of the container images as snapshots as opposed to actual servers that we have to keep in compliance with tools like configuration management. Mm -hmm. It might be interesting too, just to point out that you know the containers are a lot like processes, but they still need a host to run on. So you still need this Docker host machine that has the Docker um, engine and everything installed to run the containers. So I do think there's a still a place for Ansible and and Chef and things like that for basically configuring and managing your host environment, and then you can just drop in your containers to run there because in in a cluster of hosts, you'll, there are still tasks required for registering it with some central service, like if you're running um, Docker Swarm or Amazon service, but we might be jumping ahead of ourselves there a little bit. But um, I was just to, all the way back to the beginning of your question there, how does it relate to Chef and Ansible? You know, I was using Vagrant, I was writing a bunch of Chef recipes to build up our development environment and all that, and that was quite a pain and a headache because, as you said earlier, I'm a PHP developer, not really a Ruby developer, so messing around with Ruby and Chef was a challenge for me, and it was painful. Well, now I don't use that at all because all the commands I need are just line by line um, in a Docker file, and it's very straightforward, easy to read, and maintain. So, And it, it kind of gets back to the all of your environments look the same. Uh, we use Scotch.io as our Vagrant box right now, which uses Puppet to configure, but we use Ansible in production. So... Anytime we make an Ansible change, we then have to make that change in Puppet. We can't really use the same thing. Uh, that's not a huge hurdle to overcome, but it's it's something you, like we have to take into consideration because of the way we're set up. But uh, with a Docker file, if I say I'm using the PHP 7 image, that's the same image my coworkers are using. I don't have to 
worry about it. So you said you likened it to a snapshot, kind of like if I was in AWS and I take a snapshot of the current state of my server, it like all the log files, all the configuration, everything will be exactly just as it would be if I restored from that snapshot. That That's kind of what happens in Docker? In a sense. Uh, so when you run a Docker file and you build a, an image, uh, after each command in the Docker file, it takes a small little snapshot and freezes everything in place. So when you pull it back down, everything is as it was at that time. Uh, now you can put your application in there, and there are ways to make uh, some of those areas not uh, snapshotted. Like you know, we may you may designate something as what's called a volume, like var ww html, where your application lives, and you don't want uh, that to be kind of snapshot. You want to be able to update code and stuff like that over time. Uh, but it, it does kind of freeze things in place. So the versions of software that are installed are always the same every time you pull down the Docker image. So uh, if you built the image with PHP 7.0.1, that's the version that's going to come down until you rebuild that image completely from scratch. But like a snapshot, it really is can, can be 100% of the dependencies and source code, the mm -hmm. server, the process, everything you need essentially to run your app. So, you know, as we build new images, we, we think images get tagged. And so we tag them with current timestamp or you can tag them with your commit hash or something as well. And so it makes rolling back um, on things very simple because 100% of what was needed to run the app was in that container. Mm -hmm with the exception of databases. So, you know, things like that you got to deal with. But from an application code standpoint, when you have to deal with things like, you know, what happened with NPM, you know, recently with that package just kind of disappearing and breaking uh, a significant percentage of the internet because they were dependent on NPM to be able to pull in the package. Uh, now you kind of mitigate that risk because you only need to pull down packages when you're building new images. Your old ones already have everything. So, um, you're not pulling, doing a composer update or install in your production environment or anything like Chef might execute for you or Ansible might do for you. Instead, that's all run in advance, packaged as a binary image, and then shipped that way. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like having a composer.lock file. You, you make sure that you have the exact version of everything in that whatever state, or is it literally like a, a literal copy of everything from your vendor directory? It probably depends on the application. Most of the time, you're probably going to have everything. So you'll have a copy of uh, vendor as it exists. What uh, I do with our one of my uh, one of my projects, we build everything in Bamboo, and that Bamboo build artifact has a, vent, a full vendor directory, all the npm stuff installed, all of that. During the Docker process, it will pull down that artifact from S3 dump that into the Docker file, and then that's all static, and I can deploy that image to any number of machines. So that as soon as that image comes up, uh, it has everything that's ready to go. So it, it it swaps out in about two seconds, and you're done. Cool. So is it basically like adding um, kind of like a Git workflow to DevOps? A little bit, because uh, especially with being able to version uh, containers, you can much more easily roll back. Uh, like Philip said, you can tag them however you want. So you can tag them with the release number. And if release 20 doesn't work, you can easily just pull down to release 19 and redeploy that. Uh, what's also nifty, because I've had to do this a couple times, uh, I can then turn around and pull down release 20 locally, boot it up, because it looks exactly like it does in production, and see what was wrong at that time. I can 
uh, rerun it against you know an integration server and find out was it something that was with data? Was it something that just didn't build correctly? Um, did someone commit something and uh, like we recently just found out there's a bug in our build process that after we ran all the unit tests and stuff, we then accidentally ran a composer update every single time, uh, which broke quite a few things uh, when I turned that off because you don't want composer update to just randomly run and update packages. Uh, so, but I can pull that image down and look at it and see exactly what was wrong instead of rolling back production to get production back working and then trying to, you know, debug stuff on my local dev box. Think, hoping that it looks the way it did in production. When I pull that image back down, that tagged image, it looks exactly like it was in production because it's the exact same thing that was in production. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a real nice thing because with everything built in there, you can pull it down. You can you can basically, they call it exec into it, but it's almost like SSHing into the box essentially and being able to just go explore the file system, check mm -hmm. what processes are running, things like that. So, you know, troubleshooting and things like that become to be pretty nice for looking at that stuff. Mm -hmm. Cool. That's that's it. Sounds so. It sounds like um, with with Docker, you the the main value is that you get something locally that is going to be as close to production as possible. Whereas you, whereas like if you didn't have Docker, for example, you're you might be running Ubuntu um, fourteen on your on your local machine, and then you push it up to Ubuntu sixteen or something like that, mm -hmm. and then you have like all that potential for maybe differences in in config or just something that's that will throw things off. But Docker kind of ensures that the configuration and everything in the environment is is pretty much spot on, right? Yep, and uh, even even with a very tightly controlled configuration management system, um, like you said, your local environment might be Ubuntu, uh, like our. Our Vanguard boxes are Ubuntu 14.04, but we deploy to AWS, so we use the AWS image. Uh, the closest I could possibly get that's CentOS 7 with some extra packages, but I'll never get it exactly like the AWS AMI. Uh, and then there's even little tiny variances where if the OS is the same all across the board, if I start the project six months ago, uh, I don't update the software every six months. So I might have a slightly different version of PHP than what someone else has. Uh, so, you know, we're probably both on, hopefully both on 5.6, but maybe I'm on 5.5. But then the, you know, the brand new coworker we got installs everything from scratch and he gets 5.6. So, you know, you end up with little tiny variances like that with uh, virtual machines. And that's, you know, kind of something we've had to put up with. Uh, but with Docker, if I pull down that image for all using the same base image, we all get bit for bit exactly the same thing. Yeah, I almost liken it to, you know, 10 years ago, we had, we would focus on building the golden image. Mm -hmm. And so when you're running in your data center, you're building these golden images that have all of the packages and all the configurations and everything you need. And then you just start installing that ISO on every server you deploy because then it's consistent for you on every server. But it's huge. It's got everything that you might need and want in it. And so then we kind of, the pendulum swung all the, way, the other way and we started going to the software configuration provision just-in-time kind of thing where we're using Puppet and Chef to start with a minimal OS and then only run the recipes appropriate for that box and install just those configurations as needed. But that required being run in the environment where that server was going to be and live and exist. And then now we've kind of come back towards the middle where we're really just in time building um, golden images specifically for the process and the app that we're running. And so we walk away with this binary image that can be deployed and run in a, in a, literally in a second or less. Um, and it's extremely fast and um, 
uh, convenient way to do that now. And when we were running, we, were, we used to deploy on Amazon too with their OpsWorks product, which is like their Enterprise Chef um, hosted environment. And a deployment would take anywhere from around 15 minutes or something because it was checking out the source and then running our Compose Rep date and then running database migrations and whatever else it had to do. And it was super slow. And now we have, um, we use CodeShip for all of our continuous integration and deployment. And so CodeShip builds a new Docker image for us, executes our tests against it. So now we're running unit tests against the image that that's going to be running in production, we push that image off to a registry and that gets um, deployed to the Amazon's Elastic uh, or EC2 container service. And the process of deploying the, the EC2 container service generally completes in less than 90 seconds. So, you know, the whole deployment time is extremely fast now compared to what it was before and that makes a huge difference for minimizing downtime and that awkward period of time where things are updating and so the app's not responding properly or something. Cool, and you've actually written quite a few blogs about some of these um, some of these kind of deployment strategies, right? Yeah, a couple. Um, yeah, we we wrote a um, we just built a little shell script we call ECS Deploy here that um, can trigger a blue green deployment on Amazon real easy because the way that their EC2 container services um, functions, it works on these things called a task definition, and that's essentially how you define what containers need to be run, how you configure them, like environment variables, things like that. Um, and then you define a service that is configured to run a particular version of a task definition. And so if you update the service to use a new version of the task definition, it has all the logic built in to basically do the rolling deployment for you. And so just to really simplify our deployment process, we've got this little script that can be run and um, it works quite nicely. It's gotten some um, some pretty good response on, on GitHub. We've got a lot of pull requests and stuff come in on it and people using it. So it really seems to be um, solving a uh, challenge there that uh, works very nicely. Cool. Well, hopefully we'll get a, a link to that and I can add it to the show notes uh, a little sure. bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when we were talking, uh, me and Phil were talking at PHP Tech um, about this episode and I was trying to wrap my head around Docker because I've actually never used Docker before. And um, he was um, using really cool uh, terminology to help me understand what Docker images versus container was and and likening it to PHP as in Docker, Im- Docker images are like a class, right? You write, uh, you create a class in PHP and a container is an object. So it's like an instantiated class. Is that is that kind of what you were trying to explain yeah definitely i think i think that's in my mind and the way i picture it that's a great way to describe it is you know we write classes and they exist and classes extend other classes and very likewise docker images extend other docker images and so there's a there's a very good number of what are called base official base images that come from docker like a ubuntu image or an alpine linux image or an nginx image or something and um, or even a php one and then from those, every Docker image you create is always going to say from some image. That's the very first line of any Docker file says from and then what base image it's coming from. So in the same way as our classes extend other classes, that's essentially how Docker images work. And they're, um, now Chris can probably talk about layered file systems better than I can, but essentially these Docker files end up become, creating multiple layers on top of each other through the whole copy on write concept and each layer is a diff. And so anyway, all that just to say is, yeah, an image is essentially a class. And then once you start running containers, you get multiple instances of it because you can run, you know, 50 or 100 containers of the same image. Um, and it's like instances. 
Cool. So um, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> I, I like I like the uh, I mean, there's a lot of light. You know, when you're talking about layers and then the writing something or other there. Um, so if we were to step back for just a second and, and think like, OK, I have never used Docker before. I'm familiar with maybe Vagrant and I can, you know, do some provisioning on my own or shell. I can write some shell scripts to get me to, you know, to the place where I want to be. How where's my step one if I want to start implementing Docker? Like what? What do I do? You mentioned base images. So I just write a Docker file, pull in one of those base images, and just start writing what I want it to install in this base image kind of thing? I mean, that's, yeah, essentially, there are some good tutorials put out by Docker to help um, help you explore the concept. They just had their third birthday a couple months ago, and so as part of that, they put out a tutorial and organized a kind of a global birthday party and had new people kind of going through the tutorial. So, that, you know, if somebody brand new, I'd probably recommend jumping in on that because it'll help you see how a multi-container environment works and what the Docker files look like. But yeah, essentially, if you're thinking about your application and you think about your Vagrant script, what does your Vagrant script do in order to build up that environment? And if it's a Vagrant with a shell script in it, which was um, how I ran Vagrant for quite a while as well, um, that shell script can almost be ported to a Docker file in terms of you got all these commands saying apt get install, apt get install, and you can do those within um, a Docker file as well. And then you can tell the Docker file will copy my application folder into this path in the container and um, stuff like that in a similar way. And you can kind of do it in pieces too. A lot of times, starting off with a project, I'll just start running uh, using Docker run commands and pull down the base PHP image and see what I need from there. Uh, and then, you know, generally when I start out, I'm going to have to have a an Nginx image, a PHP image, and a like a MySQL image. So we'll use those basic building blocks, start that up, figure out what I need to go, write down what extensions I need to install, uh, and then start keeping track of that in a Docker file. So once I've got it kind of working, you can start building the Docker files. Uh, and once you have the Docker files built, then that kind of leads you into the Docker Compose files. So now our multi-tier applications can start to come up and work pretty well. Uh, I mean, uh, for my for a, a website I just deployed, it's a two-line Docker file because uh, it's uh, it's a static website. So I actually take Sculpin output, and the Docker file is from Nginx copy outport underscore prod uh, to where it needs to go in the image, and that's it because uh, it's all I need for that application. Other ones I have, it's you know from PHP colon seven, so I get PHP seven, and then a couple commands do install libraries for like uh, for icon v and mcrypt and stuff install those extensions and then they they go on their way so it's like sometimes you can get away with five ten line docker files uh some can get pretty complex if you have a very unique setup uh but as you start to break out your application you can kind of start to see where those those pieces need to go and you can build on as you go along yeah and i find that you know just like you would do in your your development, you start this class and it starts out simple and then it starts getting more and more complicated and then you start realizing, well, I've got to create this other class and it needs similar capabilities. So maybe some of this should be refactored into a base image and then I go from there. So, you know, we've worked to the point where we've got our a base PHP 7 image and then from that I'll extend and have a PHP FPM version of it and then my application's built from that because sometimes I just need command line PHP, so I don't need the extra FPM configuration and packages and stuff. So, you know, we start base and just kind of extend and, and do it in the same way we would in our object-oriented programming. Mm -hmm. Are there any best practices for setting up 
um, how you would structure those types of situations, like maybe in a typical uh, lamp stack. Um, you, you mentioned uh, you like to do Nginx as its own separate thing. Um, what, what's, would it be an issue to have Nginx and PHP 7 uh, in the same image, for example, or is there a best practice for how to structure that and how to extend? Docker really kind of stresses the one process per container idea. Uh, sometimes you can't do that for various technical reasons. Uh, but as much as you can get a single process in a container, the better. So like I said, a lot of my PHP applications are an Nginx container, a PHP FPM container, and a MySQL container. Um, the And the reason for that is if I need to swap out a piece, it becomes much easier. If I want to try... If I have an old legacy application that I know works in 5.4, I can have a 5.4 container. But then if I want to upgrade it to 7, I can take out that 5.4 container, swap in a 7 one real quick, and see how it reacts without having to go in and build a whole new image with Nginx and try to get that to work and, and all that junk. Uh, so it makes it much easier to swap out pieces when it's componentized like that. Uh, there, A lot of times people will say, well, I can run Apache and PHP in the same container. And you can and still actually still adhere to the one process per container because Apache and PHP normally run as a single process. Uh, so like there is a, the PHP official image has a, an Apache version. Uh, and that's, for me, that's perfectly fine because you're running PHP as mod PHP. Uh, but if you're going to separate stuff out and like you really love Nginx, I would put a PHP in its own container because also kind of getting back to the, the, the class versus object thing, uh, you do you start to look at the single responsibility rule? Uh, my PHP container should really only worry about PHP, not the database, not the web server. Uh, it should just worry about running the PHP applications. If I need to do something special with static files, let something else handle that, uh, because there will be something better suited than PHP for serving static files. So where would, uh, for example, if I wanted to add a uh, mail catcher on my development environment and I didn't want that to go in pr production, and I'm just thinking, like, how it's structured this. If they're all just extending from each other, then I have, like, uh, mail catcher extends, I don't know, base box, and then what extends mail catcher? Like, how do you fit it into that, that architecture? Well, the primary development tool or um, Wrangler slash orchestration utility that Docker has is called Docker Compose. So Docker is a whole bunch of different things. Docker is the main brand, um, but there are several different products involved in there. And there's one called Docker Compose, and it uses a YAML-based format for you to define multiple containers or multiple services and how they relate to each other. So what you'd probably do in development is you would have your Nginx container, you'd have your PHP container, and you'd have your database, and you'd have your mail catcher. You said mail catcher? Is that what you're yeah. referring to? Mm -hmm. So then maybe you'd have a mail catcher container there as well. And it, Docker Compose does some really neat things with automatically setting up the networking and routing between all of these containers for you so that when you, you name each one, you give it some name, like it'd be called mail catcher. And so what happens then is the other containers that are defined within Docker Compose, they can all route to hostname mail catcher and vice versa. They can route to hostname PHP or hostname Nginx or whatever, um, depending on how you define the network in there. But by default, they could reach each other and talk to each other like that. And so uh, that's how you would run it in a development environment. And then when you went to production, you'd end up defining the environment a little bit different. You wouldn't have that mail catcher component involved. Most people use Docker Compose strictly in a development context. 
although it can also be used in more production contexts and um, with some announcements that were just made at DockerCon this week um, that might make it a, a more um, suitable use case of using Docker uh, Compose in production and stuff too. Um, and there's there's some tools that actually use Docker Compose too, like Rancher, for example, can use a Docker Compose file for its production deployments. So you can go in and say, here's my Compose file and have a production version that gets saved in, in Rancher. And then Docker Compose also allows you to merge together com, uh, config files. So you can have uh, a production one that gets shipped and then a second development one, one that modifies the first one. So you say, start with the development one, append the, the uh, start with the production one, append the development one, and that development one says, oh, hey, we're gonna set an environment variable in PHP to look at Mailcatcher instead of the local SMTP server, and then also define the Mailcatcher box. Uh, one of my real basic sites, that's actually, I deploy through Docker Compose. So the, the production deploy is the main Docker Compose file. And when I bring it up in development, I just bring development up with the additional development compose file. And so all the, all the containers stay pretty much the same, except the, uh, the way I get my application into the containers and stuff like Mailcatcher. Uh, so it makes it really easy to kind of extend and modify uh, Docker Compose stuff. And, and like Philip said, some of the stuff that's going to come out in Docker 1.12 and the new versions of Compose and Swarm uh, are going to make it much more attractive to deploy directly from Docker Compose and not have to have as much additional tooling as we kind of have to have right now. And Docker, Docker Compose is actually part of the whole suite of Docker tools that you that you get when you install Docker? Yeah, it's uh, well, so it's it's a little bit tricky, and it depends on how you're installing Docker. Uh, so there's a couple different main sets of applications. You have Docker Engine, which is the actual thing that runs the containers and uh, make sure they're running and give you the, the tooling to say, like, yes, it's running, let's stop it, let's start it, all that fun stuff, build images. Uh, you then have Docker Machine, which is a machine provisioning tool, which will actually talk to some sort of third-party service and uh, generally create a virtual machine. So, like, there's a DigitalOcean plugin that when you run it, it will, for example, spin up an Ubuntu box, uh, or you can talk to EC2 or Azure, a whole bunch of different things, uh, and then install Docker inside that virtual machine that comes up. There's Docker Compose, which we just talked about, which is uh, the orchestration part for your multi-container applications. And then there's Docker Swarm, which will take, uh, it, it's a clustering tool for uh, Docker nodes. So you can use Docker Machine to build 30 machines and then take Docker Swarm and put them all together as one gigantic cluster. Uh, those are the, the main applications you can download. Uh, they, they don't come usually as one bundle. The, like on Linux, you have to install individual ones. Uh, Windows and OS X, generally, they all come in at once because it's a nice package everybody needs. Uh, but they're technically separate uh, products, all, all under the Docker umbrella. Yeah, it's actually really good timing for doing this as well to encourage people to check out Docker because this, um, at DockerCon, they um, announced that the Docker for Mac and Docker for Windows um, products, which are currently in beta, they were in a closed beta where you needed to request an invite. They're now generally publicly available so anybody can go download them and get started and docker for mac and docker for windows is definitely the easiest way to get started with docker on windows or mac mm -hmm. uh, if you're on linux you really don't need those and maybe we maybe that that was maybe we've never really um, pointed that out that docker is a strictly a linux technology it is a uh, 
it's based on C groups, um, which is a function of the kernel. And so um, on, on the Linux machine, you can run Docker natively, and all of your containers actually run as processes in your, in your host OS. Uh, you don't need any virtual machines or anything to do that. On Mac and on Windows, because they're not Linux, you need a Linux virtual machine running with Docker available, and therefore... Uh, it to run properly, and so that's what um, Docker for Mac and Docker for Windows do, is they utilize lightweight virtualization capabilities that are built into the operating systems to run a very small um, Linux virtual machine with Docker in it, and then they do a bunch of other tricky stuff under the hood to make a lot of networking things work and stuff, but um, they, by far, those two products provide the best Docker experience on Mac and Windows. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so, yeah. Windows Server 2016 actually has a thing called Windows Containers. Uh, they emulate a kernel, uh, so your containers actually run natively uh, instead of having to run through Hyper-V. So that Microsoft has done a lot to get Docker to work and make it a very enjoyable experience on Windows. Uh, but that's only on Server 2016. If you're using Windows 10, you use the Hyper-V virtualizer, uh, like Philip said. Uh, if and for OSX Yosemite, you can run uh, the new stuff. If you're on any older versions, you have to use what's called Docker Toolbox, which was a bundle of like VirtualBox and uh, a different ISO than what they use for the Docker Beta. Uh, so that's kind of the one downside is it's it's a really nice piece of software. The Docker Beta is really really nice, but you have to be on Windows 10 or OSX Yosemite. Yeah, it's even Windows 10 Pro. Yes, Windows so. 10 Pro. So, like, my, my laptop won't run it because uh, I, I don't have Pro on my, uh, that machine. <laughs> well, I'm curious if you have uh, more details on just sort of the, the more nerdy aspects of Docker, like, at the at, at the core. You mentioned, like, multi-layered file system read writing something or other. Um, what? 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 <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so what Philip had mentioned was the uh, this idea of a copy on write file system, um, and it it has to do with the way Docker builds images. Uh, so what it, it what it does is as you build a Docker file, every command inside of a Docker file uh, creates a new layer. So it does an operation. Let's say it installs a bunch of software. Uh, it takes a snapshot and then does that. Uh, then the next command runs and it makes a new layer on that. And then these commands just layer up on top of each other. Um, but then you can start to share things between them. So if you have a, uh, I'm pretty sure this is still the case. If you have the Ubuntu image already downloaded on your machine and you then pull the Nginx image, the Nginx image actually shares a common ancestry with the Ubuntu image. So instead of downloading all seven layers of Nginx, you only download the couple where they installed Nginx because the other ones come from Ubuntu. Um, the reason this kind of gets a little bit powerful is you can take advantage of that layering system to reduce the amount of time it takes to build machines uh, and be able to much, much more easily pull these things down. So if you are constantly deploying uh, a PHP 7 application and the only thing you're doing during doing during your build process is throwing your files in to the image. Uh, when Docker goes to redeploy the new image, it's not going to pull down all the original stuff from Ubuntu and Nginx and PHP and all that. It's only going to download that layer that changed. So the download process is much easier. Uh, so it, it's it's kind of a nifty thing they did where 
instead of it being a vagrant box where every time I pull down uh, the the homestead image or the uh, scotch box image, that's a three, 400 meg download. Uh, the layer download may only be, you know, the 20 megs it was to deploy my application um, because the rest of it's all, all those other layers are sitting on the machine. And do you have to explicitly declare what is shared between the layers or is there like access to a, a global state, if you will? Um, it's, it's based on the from image that you're using and the commands you're running inside of it. Uh, so you can branch off at kind of different points. Um, and that's, that's kind of where it is the, the stuff, but usually you're going to say, I have all these images that already exist and it's only going to grab, you know, the top couple that it needs to. And, and really for most people, you're probably, it's probably not something you have to worry about too much. Uh, but it, it can be a cause of concern if all of a sudden like your hard drive space is gone because, uh, of a bad way you're <laughs> building your Docker file. <laughs> yeah. And I think that last point right there, Chris, is part of why Docker has been exploding like crazy because this concept of containers um, is not new. They've been around for 10, 15 years or something with Solaris zones and C groups and other things. And um, But all the time, those were highly complex, very difficult to use um, uh, solutions. And so you really had to be pretty advanced to do that. And that typically fell to some kind of advanced system administrator or whatever who, who was able to do that stuff. I mean, like Google's been running on containers forever, but that they had that capability to do it. What Docker has done, though, is lower the barrier to entry so low that it's available for, you know, all developers and operations folks who want to invest a few minutes to go learn the basics of it and get going with it. Like, you know, I don't have to really understand how this layered file system works to build and use the technology. Now, I could probably use it better if I understood those things a bit better, but I don't have to know them. Um, I can take advantage of you know, a pretty great technology without that mm -hmm. knowledge. It, it's, um, it's the same thing VirtualBox or uh, Vagrant did for virtual machines. Uh, mm -hmm. You install Vagrant and two other packages, and then now all of a sudden I'm building virtual machines without really thinking about it. Uh, I remember when I started using virtual machines, they were in a big giant rack, and I paid, uh, well, I didn't pay, the company paid thousands of dollars for licenses to run VMware. And we had these massive, ugly, hard to use management tools. And now I can buy a commodity laptop, run Vagrant up, and I have three machines running inside my laptop now. It, the barrier to entry has been lowered dramatically when it comes to containers. That's awesome. Um, when I was talking with Phil at PHP Tech, uh, you mentioned uh, Kubernetes. Kubernetes, is that right? Yeah, Kubernetes. Uh, Kubernetes, yeah. Yeah, what's interesting is a new you know paradigm or challenge that's introduced with this world of containers um, is uh, a concept or a concern of orchestration. Like, how do you make sure these things are running? How do you make sure they can find each other? I mean, some of that's just a concern of microservices in general, is how does one service discover another service and know where it is? But even in the world of, of um, containers, it's easy now. Like Chris was talking about Docker Swarm, which allows you to treat multiple, basically physical hosts as one chunk of compute capacity to the point that you don't have to know how many boxes are there, what the individual um, capabilities of each one are. You can just essentially just tell Docker to run things and it will go find to the right place to run it. So when you have this stuff of, you know, your container might be running on box one, two, three and data center one or two, how do they know how to route to each other from a networking perspective? And 
Um, when you say you want five copies of it running, how do you ensure the five copies are always running? Um, and so orchestration is a big concept in this field, and there are dozens of vendors who are providing solutions to help with this. Kubernetes is one of those, and um, I mentioned it because it's one of the big ones. It is, um, you know, Google's infrastructure all runs on what they call the Borg, and the Borg is something they developed internally for managing and distributing and orchestrating all the containers that run everything at Google. And so they wanted to make that available to the world as well. And so they went through a process of kind of, I think it's mostly a rewrite in an open source fashion. And that's what is Kubernetes. And it's a, it's a very robust, very capable uh, platform. It's, it's sort of complex. Um, Definitely a higher uh, learning curve for Kubernetes than some of the other solutions out there. But what's neat about it is it's not vendor specific. You could run Kubernetes in your own data center. You can run it. You can use Google's Container Engine service, which is basically hosted Kubernetes. You could do Kubernetes on DigitalOcean or Amazon, wherever you want. So it provides an interesting opportunity for those who need to run in multiple locations to be able to have a very consistent way to do that. Um, you know, personally, I don't have that challenge because we just do development locally on our systems, and then we're pushing to Amazon. So we're using Amazon's EC2 container service to facilitate the orchestration and management of our containers. But if we had a need to do things internally or across multiple um, uh, cloud providers, Kubernetes is probably the route we would go to do that. Chris, do you use Kubernetes at all? Um, not really. Uh, for for me, and I, I think that you you kind of stress this point a little bit. Uh, Kubernetes solves a problem when I have lots of machines, like a couple hundred machines and data centers, and I'm really worried about a large amount of data, of redundancy. Uh, most people don't have that problem, I find. Uh, they're doing stuff like I want to deploy to AWS. I have three or four Docker machines that we want to handle. Uh, so I think Kubernetes does definitely solve a problem. And there are a lot of people that have this problem of I need to orchestrate a huge number of things. Uh, for a lot of PHP developers, I find, you know, we're worried about getting this application running in containers, and we might need to spin up, you know, a couple instances of PHP behind it, a couple instances of Nginx. Uh, so there are, and now there are a lot of tools that help us do that. Uh, the Docker stuff we've been talking a little bit about with 112 uh, makes this much easier to get into. There's little tools like uh, Rancher, which is a really good way to get into multi-machine deployment uh, for no cost whatsoever, you you run a couple Docker commands and you have a full, fully managed uh, cluster running. Uh, EC2 or ECS is also another really good one that people can get into without a ton of overhead. That I find like Kubernetes and and, and Mesos and stuff really uh, have, but they have that for a very specific reason, and that's because they're designed for these massive deployments. Uh, so I don't use it personally. I've, I've looked at it, but again, it's mostly because I've, I I don't have that problem um, that you know Google has. Google has way more servers than I will probably ever physically see in my lifetime. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they, the other thing that Kubernetes does well that had me tempted on it for a little while, but um, with Docker One Twelve, they released this new feature called multi-host networking, and there's a situation where when you're running a container on a host, if your container, let's say it's an Apache or a, uh, an Nginx container, so it's a web server, and you want to expose port 80, 
you need to figure out how do I get traffic to port 80 in my container. So because the container is just a process running on a host, it has to map that port to some port on the host. So you can either map it and say 80, port 80 in this container gets port 80 on the host instance as well, but you can only have one process bound to a port at a time. And so what happens when you want to run multiple applications on the same host and they're all web applications? Well, they can't all bind to the same port. So on Amazon ECS today, we have, internally we've got this wiki that lists our couple dozen applications that are running and we have to keep track of what ports we're allocating to each of those applications. So I say, all right, application A is getting the 10,000 block of IPs and uh, or, uh, ports, I'm sorry, and then the application B gets the 20,000 block or the 11,000 and we just basically give each one a set so that each application can bind to whatever ports it needs within that range and it's okay. So this, you know, it might all be very complicated or confusing if you haven't faced the situation, but Kubernetes solved the problem by allow virtualizing some of that and allowing you to bind to named ports. So even on the same host, you could just start saying things like using the name HTTP instead of a specific number, and it would go map that to whatever dynamic port got allocated to it. Docker 112 now solves that piece for you as well by assigning unique IP addresses to each of the containers in a way such that they can eat or different network interfaces and stuff to each one so they can um, uh, basically expose their port, bind to their port, and it facilitates um, all of that stuff internally so you can run multiple instances of the same container, same configuration on the same host, and it has um, some built-in um, mesh networking with load balancing and stuff so that requests that come in will can still load balance between multiple containers and find them and all of that. So that's that's really exciting. So um, they're looking forward to when they get that rolled out to Amazon and it simplifies my configuration a little bit there more. Mm. Yeah, like for me, we uh, we run reverse proxies for everything. So we have a couple dedicated machines that are just set up for reverse proxies and those will spread back out to whatever machine they need to go to. So we might run five or six websites per uh, box, but the rever everything has to go through reverse proxy. So depending on how you set it up, Kubernetes does solve it very well. Docker 1.12 is going to solve it uh, very nicely without a lot of overhead. Uh, so there, there are ways of doing it now, but like Philip said, you, you've got to kind of keep track of it or build your own to, to manage any of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, we're trading one set of challenges and problems mm -hmm. for another set, but for the most part, I'm finding it's totally worth it because the benefits of having this ultra-portable container that I can run here or there or otherwhere um, and the speed at which these things run and start up is just amazing. And so, um, anyway, I feel like the, those challenges are worth it. I I really love what I hear about Docker, um, and I think it's going to definitely solve some some common issues for for myself when I start actually trying to implement it. Um, one thing that I was uh, when we were kind of talking, maybe some of the cons about Docker is that it is still kind of new and it and it changes often. Is it still changing a lot? Are they are they uh, going moving fast and breaking things like Facebook did back in the day? They still do, I guess, a little bit. <laughs> um, they don't break things near as much as they used to. Uh, really, since about one point. 10 maybe 1.09 uh they've been much more cognizant of backwards compatibility uh because it more and more people are using these in a production and they're gonna have a lot of angry people if every time they update their you know from 11 to 12 uh stuff's gonna break uh, and it used to break constantly it's, new features are added at a pretty breakneck pace i find 
Um, and since they've sectioned everything out, uh, you know, Docker Compose can upgrade at its own pace compared to Docker Engine. Uh, so it it is a very fast-paced and fast-moving technology, but it's, at least in my mind, it is it is a much more stable and viable production technology now. Uh, I don't worry about it breaking near as much as I did a year ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, and I definitely think the, the environment that you run it on is quite stable and is not of much concern. The environment that's changing like, very rapidly is the desktop development environment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's been a real interesting and challenging environment if you're trying to do cross-platform um, work on applications but you want to run in Docker. That can be a pretty significant challenge, but I think what they're doing with Docker for Mac and Docker for Windows is getting better, and I think that when Bash comes to Windows 10, later this summer or whenever that releases, I think that's going to make the Windows developer experience a whole lot better, too. I mean, I'll be happy if everybody just switches to Linux. That just will. I think that really is the best option. <laughs> everybody should just switch to Linux. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> should we take a vote and just solve this that, That's now? fine. I mean, I, I, I only have uh, two machines in my house that run Windows now. Uh, my uh, laptop, which I have to keep running Windows for testing Docker, uh, and then my wife's laptop because she refuses to switch. So, uh, And we've only got one Mac, so everything else is all Linux. I forced my kids to run Linux. <laughs> so they're all set for Docker. Pseudo bang bang. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm going to name my dog, actually. I, I'm gonna, his name, his full name is going to be Pseudo bang bang powers hyphen Franzak. Franzak's my dance partner's last name. So we we we're she keeps saying we need to get a dog we need to get a dog and i'm like oh, i'd love one but we're always out on the dance competition so it'd be like a lot of responsibility and cost for the kindle and stuff but the perfect name for a dog is pseudo bang bang <laughs> and then you have to explain it every time like someone asks so oh what's bang bang what is that it's like well in the command line and then you spend 10 minutes later they're like eyes glazed over like oh yeah that's gonna be fun they'll just say oh pseudo is a cool name <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just uh, awesome. it just has a nice ring to it <laughs> Um, well, so I want to start wrapping this up because we're, we actually, this has been a good discussion. It's, uh, we're kind of running a little bit over time, but that's cool. Um, I do want to at least mention that, uh, on github.com slash PHP roundtable, there's a repo sitting there called show dash notes. And if you're just listening along and want to just sit here and write down and mark down, cause like when you take notes, of course you write down and mark down, right? Um, I, I highly recommend just sitting here and taking the notes and mark down and then posting those or send a PR to this show notes repo and i'll give you a shout out personal shout out on the php roundtable we'll give you total credit and a link to your twitter uh your beautiful twitter um handle uh, on the on the website um and it, it's just nice so that when people are listening along they can sit there and click on the links and uh like the one that uh philip mentioned earlier i want to get that um your uh your gist or something it was a gist or his actual repo Oh, the for that script, yeah, I'll yeah. send you a link to the article for his podcast yeah. and maybe the GitHub repo, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that'll be good to to get that resource. Um, I do want to wrap this up with a developer shout out, and that is the segment that rep- rec- recognizes a developer in the community for being awesome, super duper amazing. I send them a thank you note and a fifty dollar Amazon gift card from. Laracast, because Laracast has been a long-term, long-time sponsor, long-time sponsor of the PHP Roundtable uh, for the developer shout-out, and uh, every month uh, Jeffrey Way sends a hundred dollars to that we can do two episodes and send fifty-dollar Amazon gift cards to developers. So, thanks Jeffrey for your long-time support. Laracast is the de facto um, place to learn anything Laravel and anything um, testing or. Um, 
uh, IDEs and anything that you want to do with um, PHP. Um, you just sit there and he takes you um, wherever you want to go and whatever you want to learn uh, in the style of like Netflix and you just pop some popcorn and eat and uh, learn some PHP stuff. Um, I'm a personal subscriber of it and it's uh, fantastic. So um, thank you, Laracas, um, for the, the long-term sponsorship. Um, for this episode, I asked the panel to nominate somebody special and amazing who's done a lot for the community and they have nominated Eli White. So... Dragon Man Tank on Twitter. Why do we nominate Mr. Eli? Um, so Eli has been a very long-standing member of the PHP community. Um, I remember going to his talks way back when when I started going to conferences. Uh, so he's given many uh, a huge variety of talks, WordPress development, security talks, all sorts of stuff. Um, uh, uh, not too many years ago, uh, he and his company, Musketeers, uh, me, took over the PHP Architect brand. Uh, which has been a long-standing uh, community uh, sponsor and conference uh, setup that you know has been around for it's an institution basically. Uh, so they took that over and still to this day they've upheld that quality of conferencing and uh, community that the original uh, PHP architect had. So now they have the PHP Tech. Uh, which has recently moved to St. Louis. Uh, they have, they've introduced PHP World, which brings together a whole bunch of different framework uh, people. And has, I think this is the third year, and very excellent conference. And then now they're doing special things like the PHP Cruise. Uh, so he uh, and his wife helped facilitate all of that stuff to make sure that we have quality conferences and stuff to go to. So I think that's an invaluable service that not too many people can provide to the community. Uh, so I think it would just be great for him to... Uh, received this developer shout out uh, for all, all really all that he's done for the community over these many, many years. Absolutely. So thanks, Eli, for everything that you've done. And I will be reaching out to you for your snail mail address and get this gift card to you and the thank you note and a giant PHP roundtable sticker. I've, I've still got quite a few of those left. I'm trying to get them all done. I think actually at one conference I tried to hand Chris uh, a, a one of my <laughs> PHP roundtable stickers. It's a giant sticker. And he goes, no, don't don't give me that. It's too big. I can't put it anywhere. Don't I just don't even. I just waste it. You, you've seen <laughs> my laptop. Sure I physically did not have it would have covered up like 12 of the other stickers well I, i'm telling people they should use it as a base sticker you can like put it on on the bottom and then you put other stickers on top of it it's like a sticker holder kind of thing <laughs> sticker display i'll stick it on the bottom of my laptop i've got it on my coffee table here in my uh, oh nice that's, uh, that's, that's where i put all my stickers not on my laptops but all over the coffee tables in my office here so. well it is a nice round uh sticker so if you do have it like on a table it could be like your official cup holder or cup cup placement mm-hmm. device. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, well, let's wrap this up officially. The end here with some shameless plugs. Um, let's start with Phil. Do you got anything that you want to shamelessly promote? Um, well, I think probably just as it relates to Docker, I think our ECS deploy script is pretty awesome, um, just based on the feedback and people using it. So I'll provide a link there, um, and then I'll also just say I wrote another article last week that CodeShip picked up and published about uh, basically scaling down with Docker. Docker is often equated or associated with massive scale like Google, but the same qualities that allow you to scale up with it allow you to scale way down. And so you can save on resources, save on money, and um, scale down with it. So that'd be the other thing I'd recommend is that article. Sounds good. What about you, Chris? You got anything you want to promote? Um, so if you are interested in Docker, I do have a book. It's called Docker for Developers. It's at leanpub.com slash docker for devs. 
really, really nice introduction to getting up and running with Docker, especially as it relates to us as developers. Uh, I also have, if you watch my Twitter, not as a general way to get people to uh, follow me, but uh, soon I will have a, a video series to go along with it. So if you, you can get nice. actual recorded videos of doing that, uh, plus maybe something new that may be coming along. So if you're interested in a, you know, something kind of like Laracast, but very Docker specific, uh, follow me and you'll know when that comes out, uh, hopefully within the next month or so. Excellent. And you, you don't have to change the name of your book or? No, the book, the book will stay Docker for developer, Docker for developers. <laughs> We were just talking a little bit about branding changes for uh, at Docker, and uh, I was like, I should add that to the show notes. And, and Chris is like, I don't think anybody cares about branding nah. for Docker. Just I, <laughs> okay, just sure. uh, I, I am, I am <laughs> sad that I lost my awesome book cover that I had uh, from uh, Bo Simons' wife. So, uh, that sucks. Well, Sketch uh, chimed in on Twitter, and he and he helped me figure out what I was trying to say when I was talking about the sticker on the table. And he says, "I think you mean a coaster." So, thanks, Sketch. That's exactly what I meant. <laughs> Not a cup holder device thing. Um, <laughs> so, uh, our next episodes are going to be probably about event sourcing, um, and we're going to try to figure out what happened to PHP six. I still haven't reached out to anybody on that one, so we, the d- the dates aren't officially. Um, nailed down very tentative uh, but those will be uh, kind of fun episodes to get into if you have something uh, that you'd like to share on the BHP roundtable you have an idea you're like this topic needs to be talked about or I want to talk about this topic definitely hit me up I'm Sammy K on, on Twitter and uh, you can also ping the PHP roundtable or just go to phproundtable.com and then fill out the form that says I got an idea or I want to join the roundtable love to have you on the show uh, thanks so much Phil and Chris for joining us in this episode and we will see you guys in the next episode. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Peace. The PHP Roundtable is recorded live using Google Hangouts on Air. If you'd like to get more information about the live broadcasts, visit phproundtable.com. While you're on the site, join the mailing list to get notified about the next live episode. And hey, maybe even join the conversation at the roundtable. We'd love to hear what you have to say. The theme music is provided by Bensound at bensound.com. The PHP Roundtable logo was designed by Clint McManaman, and you can find him at mcmanaman.co. That's M-C-M-A-N-A-M-A-N dot C-O. Thanks for listening. I'm Sammy K. Powers, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.